Hello, this is The Game Podcast from The Times and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Joining Gregor Robertson and I today, it is Alison Rudd. Alison, good to have you with us. Are you still basking in the glory of Liverpool? <laughs> I've taken my flag down. Have you? No. <laughs> I, took it down, I took it down because I was tired of going out in the street and people stopping me and saying, how long is your flag staying up? No. So I, I decided I decided a week after being presented with the actual trophy was a good time to say goodbye to the flag. And what have we done with the flag? Is it neatly wrapped up and in pressed? silver paper with a nice bow? Yeah, absolutely. In a drawer. In a, I actually do have drawers for um, football stuff. Do you? What memorabilia <laughs> stuff? Oh, it's mainly. Um, Mainly shirts, shirts and flags. Oh, do you have so a lot of one flags? Of I've got thousands of flags. Have you? Mm. What, all Liverpool or all different types of flags? <laughs> no, oh, this is so intriguing are... to me. <laughs> I have flags of uh, every nation that's competed in a European Championship or World Cup. And they're all, <laughs> really? They're all, they're all, um, they're all five foot by three foot. Oh, now this is fascinating to me. Uh, that would make you, would not, uh, and I'm not, I'm not going to say this wrong, isn't it? A vexillologist or something. Someone that collects flags, I think, or designs flags. Something to do with that. I don't know. I could be wrong. Um, I vex people. I do vex people, <laughs> mainly the neighbours. I think that might be what you're thinking of. I put, oh, yes. I put, out, I put out flags when um, there, are, there is a tournament on. And I have strict <laughs> rules about what flags are allowed to be flown. So, like, for example, the host nation has to be represented, the holders have to be represented, debutantes have to be represented, and then it's all my favourite countries based on um, mainly if they have players in them that I've interviewed or I think are particularly elegant players and so on. There's a a long list of criteria to make it into the... (laughs) Make it into the Ali Red window display. I absolutely love this. Gregor, do you have as many flags? If, or do no, you I'm, have one? I'm feeling very inadequate right now. I think uh, <laughs> we're, we're going to be talking about uh, what it takes to be a kind of football geek. I think you should have really saved that for that section, Alison. That's kind of that's that very is. impressive. So that's, just, that's just an order. That's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> that is like above and beyond, isn't it? Um, Gregor, how are you keeping, by the way? I'm good, yes. Um, how are you, though, more importantly, Nat? I oh. mean, oh, what can I say? Um, I felt for you. I did feel for you. It was very, yeah. it's such a heartbreaking. There's nothing, there's nothing like a playoff final in the kind of desolation and joy. There's nothing in between. Mm. It's just, uh, Absolutely. yeah, very tough to take. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm sort of getting over it, but uh, no doubt we're going to have to talk about it. So that'll just bring it all back. But anyhow, um, there is loads coming up as we talk Arsenal, football finance and football addictions. And we've already had a little insight into Alison Rudd's world. But yes, first we do have to talk about this. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, so let's start with the elephant in the room. Fulham 2, Brentford 1 after extra time in the championship playoff final at Wembley to send Fulham straight back into the Premier League whilst Brentford's brilliant season ends in them coming up just short. Many expected an entertaining game from two of the league's top sides, but... The 90 minutes were goalless and perhaps a little cagey with Fulham stifling Brentford's attacking threat. Um, Alison, was that 90 minutes a disappointment or a tactical masterclass for you? Um, well, it wasn't a disappointment. And um, I got quite cross when people were tweeting, whether it was official accounts off of the newspapers or just general fans on, on Twitter and so on saying, you know, yawn fest and so on. Mm. I thought it was completely fascinating when you think what's at stake and that, that both teams were quite uh, similar in their approach to the game of football. Um, it was it was it was never going to be one of those sort of basketball games or a match where two completely conflicting styles get you on the edge of your seat. They were it was tense, but I think tense Tense makes for um, good viewing, actually. Mm. And sometimes it was funny how far, like, um, the, the, as the game got closer to the 90 minutes, you could see both teams were just overwhelmingly petrified of being caught on the counter. So mm. they slowed down and then they slowed down and then they became uh, less and less adventurous. And I mean, that, you know, you don't, where else can you watch human beings behaving that way? It's the sort of thing you see in the nature program, isn't it? It was <laughs> entirely logical that you would be fearful of of going on the attack and the repercussions from it. So it was, I just, I just found it thoroughly absorbing. I did genuinely think Brentford were disappointing. Mm. And that wasn't entirely because you mentioned the word masterclass. I mean, that we'll come on to specific tactics that were clever but I don't I think in general terms I think what happened was that Brentford froze and Fulham having been at Wembley quite recently to win a playoff final just found it slightly less scary than than Brentford did that was what Mm. did for the 90 minutes in it in any case and then and then we'll move on to why it was a different story in extra time I'm sure what did you make of that Gregor I have to disagree Alison I thought it was pretty Pretty turgid stuff, actually, right up until Joe Bryan's goal. You're I, supposed I, I, to champion. You're supposed know, to champion non Premier League football. I, I know, I know. That's a fair point. But the final is really, it's becoming a tradition that it's a boar fest, actually. Yeah. And I think that is absolutely related to the size of the prize on offer. That's grown and grown. And more and more has been made, it, made about it being the most valuable game in, in football. The quality of the spectacle has declined, uh, undoubtedly. I mean, I think it probably will, will will never be as bad as the Huddersfield uh, <laughs> Reading final. That was really probably the worst game I've ever seen in intercepted on penalties. Um, and you know, the, the, Elson's right in one regard. The, the, just the kind of seeing the effect that has on players is fascinating, and it's actually more it would be even more so with the fans there and the kind of simmering atmosphere. I remember that, and 
you know, penalty kicks to decide whether you go up, up or down in that game. Anyway, a, a moment of a brilliance kind of lit the game up, and this and the final period of uh, of extra time was 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 very entertaining. And Fulham deserve great credit actually because mm. I think they exceeded a lot of people's expectations. So, yeah, I mean, it was a bit of both. There was there was certainly we'll come on to Scott Parker. I think I can't think of many many games in which a manager has burnished his reputation to quite that extent and over over one game. Um, <laughs> I, I really can't because if they'd if they'd failed, then he would be in the flop who had the best you know the best squad on paper and and uh, uh, you know he's probably his future would have been questioned. So, um, but they, he he kind of pulled out of the bag and and um, and ultimately they they were the winners. That sorry mm. to say. Hey, you know, it's been a few days. I've kind of resigned myself to the fact we're not going up. That's not <laughs> happening. But uh, after a goalless 90 minutes, as we've pointed out, the turning point came in the closing moments of the first half of extra time when Fulham won a free kick 40 yards from goal. Uh, the left-back Joe Bryan caught the Bees goalkeeper David Rea off guard with the Spaniard expecting perhaps a cross and then unable to scamper back and save Bryan's skidding low effort. Do we have any sympathy for, for David Rea in that moment, Gregor? Undoubtedly, I'd have sympathy for anyone who made any mistake in a, a game yeah. of such magnitude. But at the same time, I think even just in the kind of specifics of that, it was it was brilliant. I think anyone in the stadium watching at home, it was the kind of one of the most surprising sort of arresting goals I can remember seeing. It was one where you actually, you know, you had to kind of go, hang on a minute, there was a momentary pause where you were like, has that really gone in? You know, you thought it might have hit the side net and um, it was just, it was brilliant. Brilliant in its execution and brilliant in its kind of uh, conception as well. So, you know, a huge, huge, huge deal of credit has to go to, to Fulham and, and Joe Bryan. Um, but obviously I'd have some sympathy for, for Raya. Well, it, I mean, it was obviously clever by, by Fulham because that is something that David Rea has done for a long time, coming off his line and coming way off his line, in fact. Joe Bryan revealed, in fact, after the game that his manager, Scott Parker, had told him just moments before the free kick to whip it in the near post because the keeper comes ridiculously far off his line. Is this another indication, Alison, of the attention to detail and that tactical now that you've both kind of alluded to of Scott Parker? Well, he, he, he didn't even more than that, Scott Parker, because he, yes, he, he'd analysed um, the goalkeeper aggressive stance and where he would be. And he did tell Joe Bryan, make sure you do whip it in the near post. But he also play acted that he was telling him to, to cross it to the far post mm. and therefore completely fool everybody. And the combination of... Um, that sort of mind game, but also backed up with good homework and tactical analysis, is uh, is is almost a rarity, really. And I don't know if it's just because I don't know if it's just because it is at this point, you know, Fulham are still champion. We're still a championship team, and they're just more open about these things. You just don't you just don't see. Too, I mean, the last time we had a long discussion about about how discussing something and a bit of quick thinking backed up by some analysis was when um, Liverpool uh, scored that quickly taken corner against um, Barcelona in the Champions League and everyone was raving about what Liverpool must have done in the, you know, the backroom staff and so on to analyse. But it was, it was like, that was even more simple than, than this. This, this, this. this involved some proper 
you know, viewing of of weeks and weeks of what Brentford did when they set up at set pieces and so on. And that to even to go that little extra step further and play act that you're going to just send in a <laughs> send in a normal cross, I think it's quite funny. And I think um, and it, and and it came off. It came off. It was it was it was staggering. And I yeah, I'm not I'm not pretending it was the world's most exciting match. I just thought it was fascinating as opposed to exciting. Mm. But I think the fact that such a gem of a well thought out goal came when it was getting even more tense and people were and no doubt everyone watching was starting to talk about oh this is definitely going to penalties isn't it and then you're you're, you're pulled up short by something like that um so yeah I mean it's and then Scott Parker said afterwards you know he had, it's not just him it's the whole it's the team effort that do the analysis and the discussing of what to do so it's just lovely when something that's it's like somebody getting an A star in the a level, and they deserve it because they bothered to read the actual text and not the revision um, <laughs> notes, isn't it? Nicely put, indeed. Um, but Scott Parker, then, how much credit does he deserve, Gregor, for turning what was a relegated side with a losing mentality around? I, I think even earlier on this season, there were a little bit of doubt, wasn't there, over over Scott Parker? I think um, that I mean, there was a brief moment I think during the earlier part of the season where things weren't quite going to plan for Fulham, but to have gone from that to now promotion winners through the playoffs, how how much credit does he deserve? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I, I, it you know, one game I think has uh, done his reputation a huge, huge. Uh, Huge amount. I think, as you know, I've said it numerous times on this. A lot of people say Fulham have got the best squad, best squad on paper. And he said beforehand in this press conference, you know, I've never seen a piece of paper win <laughs> win you football matches. There's a lot of other things he had to confront in terms of the players' confidence, like an atmosphere around the place. He kind of alluded to the fact that there were some clicks as well. Um, and I think probably if you look back on it, the way that Fulham did so much business in that final kind of flurry of hours in transfer deadline day and that's got to have kind of disrupted the whole the whole dynamic of the of the dressing room and stuff so I think you know there's a lot of after effects of that um, and as a, you know as you say if, if the film have got the best score on paper and everyone agrees with that and they're not top of the league or even in the top two at any point of the season that kind of by association means you question the manager's work and because he's a, he's a rookie and he's in his first full season in the job that I think a lot of people are doing so also you know, th- there was times where they they dominated the ball so much. I think only Leeds had more possession of any club in the Championship. I remember that game against Millwall last August, where they had like 934 passes, which was a, a Championship mm-hmm. record. 84% of the ball, they just completely, you know, wiped the floor with them, one four nil. But then against teams around them, they had quite a poor record actually. Th- those added to the sort of question marks as well. So, yeah, and I think I think. Something about the way he reacted to the to the victory too was quite endearing. He was, you know, he's very reserved. He looked so emotional. He's quite a a serious and sincere kind of manager in the in the in front of the cameras. He's not, for being honest, he's not the best orator, um, but he showed emotion and it was quite revealing afterwards about how much he's invested into the into the job and in, in over the year and how mu- how much relief he felt. Um, so I think, you know, as I say, his, his reputation was was you know took a huge stride well in the times today gary jacob writes that fulham are preparing a new deal for scott parker that will give him greater control at the club including transfer business 
Um, he had obviously a little spell, didn't he, as manager in the Premier League. But is he ready now to step up, Alison, for you full time, full time in the Premier League? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know because at, at the Interesting final pause. whistle, at the final whistle, I was with I was with some Fulham fans and um, COVIDly safe. I have to add, but I was with some Fulham fans and. Um, just for comic effect, I said, oh, he'll be sacked at Christmas. But I, that has been the story of Fulham in recent years. Mm. There is this enormous wave of goodwill towards the manager that gets them promotion. They struggle because they're a small club and they will struggle in the Premier League. And then the, the owner has to decide, do I stick with my man who got me up? and all the emotion attached to that, or do I pull the rug from under him and, and do something more drastic to, to try and stay up? The owner will want Scott Parker to succeed. I, I, uh, I, I've met Shad Khan quite a lot of times, actually, and then there's nothing he wants more than to be able to have a, you know, some sort of a little dynasty going where it's the same manager allowed to build and stamp his design on the team and so on. Um, and I, I, you know, you, you, for, for the reasons I've just said, if you see someone take a team up, especially, as you say, Gregor, it was so emotional, you can tell that he's really bought into it. I was there when he, he took over at Fulham and talked about he believed very strongly in the Fulham way and he wanted the, run, the club to be run as a family club with good values and they, he wanted them to play good, expansive, attractive, possession-based football. The, the the doubts I have are that there have been... It has not been a season of... Um, where it's been really clear that when Fulham have lost, that it's been simply because they came up against a team, um, you know, in a fine run of form, or you know, things went for them that way. The, the Fulham... Often when they've lost drop points, it's big because of the manager is because Scott Parker has asked them to be cautious and they've they've never not don't, don't always judge when's the right moment to go into fourth gear or even fifth gear there's a, an element of caution there and I, I don't know so you look at someone like um at Sheffield United which everyone will compare them to now you know it is possible to come up and thrive that it's what the, the outstanding thing about Sheffield United is is the clear identity and the belief in it. There's no there's no caution in that team. Even in when they play cautiously, it's done with commitment. If you see what I mean. Whereas Fulham, when they get a bit nervy or doubt that things are going their way, they they look they look weak and they look there for the taking. And that is a reflection of the manager. And I don't know if he's got what it takes to be able to take on the Premier League and think, you know, I can make this team be, uh, uh, you know, when you face Fulham, you know what you're going to get and you, you know, you put it on the onus on others to, to disrupt you because you're going to be strong-willed. I feel, I feel they, I feel they've got wobbles in them and if they wobble too often, then he won't last for a full season in the Premier League, much as I wish him well. What about what do you think then, Gregor? Do you think we can judge Parker, the manager, from this one season in, in terms of making it to the very top? 
I mean, I have no idea about making it to the top. I agree, actually, with Alison, in that there are some kind of question marks, like stylistically. It's, as I said, they dominate the ball, but I, I wrote in my preview for this, for this piece, I think a lot of people at Craven Cottage would probably like to see a little a little bit more of the kind of pace and purpose that Brentford play with. You know, there's a lot of kind of side-to-side passing and, and stuff. And, you know, I, I agree, there is something about it's not... It could be more kind of dynamic, but... I think we're, we are kind of we are we are picking at, at, at the very kind of at the edges of this. I don't think I think to, for for them to have kind of rebuilt the team's confidence and they have got a style. It's just it's not it's not always that dynamic. And football, the direction of football is about high pressing and uh, you know dynamism, high energy. That's the kind of football it is. And this is more you know you'd maybe even say. Something like uh, Sari ball. They kept. They have so much of the ball, and they don't always do much with it. That's the kind of mm-hmm. thing. So, look, as I say, it's an, it's a great achievement, and he absolutely deserves this this chance. And I think Fulham are probably better placed this season. Do you uh, to go up than than they were the season before? Yeah. Do you remember? I spoke to Tim Ream um, when they were the things started to go wrong last time they were in the Premier League. He's such an open and honest and intelligent. Player. And he said, "We're just, we're just, we're just a wreck in the dressing room. We're not fighting for each other. There's no camaraderie at all." And that is so unusual when a player <laughs> says, mm. "It's just rubbish. It's just rubbish in there. There's no one prepared it's to very fight honest or anything." It? You know, we're just, we're just not good. And we, he said, they had in the previous season shown an ability to bounce back when things went wrong, and they were not. They'd lost that ability. So when some, when they when they lost, they just went into a a, a gloomy slump and then lost again and there was nobody in the dressing room able to put it all back together so I will I would like to go on the record and say Scott Parker's to to solve that problem within one season and get and get Fulham back up when they were at that very low ebb is is positive and I that and therefore I do agree with you Gregor that they are they must therefore be in a better place than they were last time simply because that camaraderie is back, and you know if if they've learnt from that and they don't, they're cleverer with who they sign. Then, yeah, I think I think they could they could they could they could just stay up. I just I just think I'm just a bit slightly worried about their identity. That's all. Well, eight of the squad from that fateful year in, in the Premier League remain, but there has been the addition of 28-year-old centre-back Michael Hector, who has been key this season. And, Greg, I know you've spoken to, to Fulham's Virgil van Mike for the Times. Could he be the difference for Fulham, do you think, staying up? He's a huge, he was a huge, huge, huge addition for them. Um, obviously, he signed uh, last September after transfer deadline day from Chelsea, uh, just missed the deadline, so he had to train for four months, couldn't play. And, you know, Fulham did have a bit of a leaky defence, and when he was introduced, uh, they, Fulham had six clean sheets in the first ten games. They're, 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 you know, I think their goals per goals per game conceded dropped from like 1.2 to 0.7. So it was just, you know, he was the only real addition, and it was just that market, and he was... He was outstanding. I think he was outstanding in the final again. And that, you know, that uh, kind of scoop uh, goal line clearance against Cardiff was something uh, incredible. So, you know, Mitrovic's goals, this wouldn't have happened. Hector's addition in January, personally, I don't think this would have happened either. So, and again, 
going up, you look at them going up. Last season they had to rely on, well, they had they signed Alfie Mawson and he was and he was injured or didn't play a lot of the time. Callum Chambers, he often played in midfield, so they had a doy a doy and uh, and Reem, and undoubtedly Hector is a massive upgrade upgrade on both of them. And the irony is, Gregor, that he came from. Chelsea, who are, really need to sort out their centre backs. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, if I if I was a Chelsea fan, I'd be thinking, oh, hang on a minute, I I, I quite like Hector back. You know, he is he is that good. He'd be in with a chance just now, certainly. Yeah. I think he is he is he is outstanding, and he's had a remarkable journey as well. At twenty eight to be hitting the Premier League, I think he had fifteen loan clubs. Um, he's played in ten different leagues, including Scotland, Ireland, Germany. All three, uh, all three football league divisions, uh, non-league football. It's been a remarkable journey for him. So um, great for him to get a chance finally at the Premier League too. So it is Fulham who are going up then, but disappointment for Brentford who will have to go again next season in the Championship. We have seen Leeds bounce back from playoff heartbreak to finish top of the pile. But one problem for Brentford could be being able to keep hold of their star players. Brentford's BMW front three have caught the eye, but the club will have a tough job to keep hold of side Ben Rama by the looks of things. And after 17 goals this season, there's reported interest from the likes of Leeds, Villa and even Spurs could see them lose the 24-year-old Algerian. Alison, do you think Brentford are resigned to, to losing some of their players? Come on now, kick me when I'm down. No, but it's not a question of resignation. It, it's a question of this is their model and they, they will happily sell their key players as long as they get good money for them. That's what that's what Brentford do. It's And if you're a Brentford fan, which you are, you know that's true. You're going to lose them as long as the, the money's yes. there. But if, if the scouts were only watching the final... Then you'll 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 be all right because no one would sign. We'll be all right, won't ben we? Rama we'll be safe after watching we'll that. Fine. But <laughs> but he, uh, I have seen him live play utterly fantastic football, where he you know he just twirls and swirls and nutmegs and dazzles defenders. And um, you've got to think really, how would he be in a in a team where, with all due respect, they were they were able to get more of the ball to him, and he you know mm. supports you know the players of his quality to play off so to speak because um, sometimes it's a bit of a, a solo run isn't it when he's when he's there I mean I, I'm, I'm, I'm scared of annoying you Natalie but um not he, at all I mean, not when, at when, all. When, Brent, when Brentford when Brentford click it's because he plays well and those sorts of players they are you know they're coveted and I, I'm sure he would like to know what it would be like to play for an established or a reasonably established Premier League team but um, I don't. I, I, if he does go, don't worry because it will be for the right money, and they will have planned for it. It will not come as a shock to anyone at the club when they sell him. It will be planned for, and they will have replacements lined up. I mentioned those teams that are interested. Reportedly, Leeds, Villa, and Spurs. I think Chelsea as well have been mooted. Can you see him playing at any of those, Alison? Any of those teams fitting in? Um. I actually could see him at Spurs. They've, they've, they've not. Other than Son, there's no one that gets you off, off your seat really at Spurs in that way. I don't think. But whether he's a Mourinho player or not is another question. But because I, I don't think he does. I don't know. I've, I've seen him track back. I've seen him put him tackle. No, he's, he's not. Really, that's not what he's. It's not what he's. It's not what he's famous for. But um, I, I mean, he'd probably. 
I don't know. You never do know, do you, whether it would click going to a bigger club and it clicks and he himself just becomes that bit better or whether he d he's sort of just treated because of where his journey that he's treated as a, a super sub or something. I mean, it, it's a big step to sign someone from Brentford and then build your team around him. Mm, but I, mm. I do feel when he's playing well, definitely, he definitely could fit in to a top half of the table club because he's he's just got that thing that is rare, that sort of innate ability to see where the space is and drag the ball along into it. It's it's when he's when he's when he's working well it's it's absolute absolute joy to watch. Mm. Oh, it certainly is and we've certainly enjoyed him but I know that we are all resigned to losing him and perhaps one or two more. Um Gregor when you consider that there will be changes at Brentford, but as Alison points out, normally Brentford's um, analysts and scouts and everyone, they, they always find a suitable replacement, if not better sometimes. If they are able to do that, replace those that, that leave, could Brentford be favourites for automatic promotion next season? Give me some hope. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Brentford will ever be favourites for the championship, personally. No. I think it's purely because their clubs will come down even if they are fairly kind of bit diminutive clubs this year in, in Bournemouth and Watford, Norwich, you know they've all got their own issues, but they've got the, the parachute payments, and Bournemouth are probably going to gather, you know, they could gather a hundred million pounds or something worth worth of, uh, if they sell some of the players this this summer. So um, I don't think they'll be favourites, but you, you know better than us, the Brentford are are kind of renowned for regenerating even when they lose their best players and it's part of their, their plan. It's how they it's how they A break even and how and now B invest more in the team and they sort of the their horizons have been broadened a bit. They can pay more for the players that they sign and they'll get more for them in return when they sell them. So they'll be up there, I'm sure. And it's a wide open league. If you look at it now I don't see a I don't see a favourite. Um mm. the way Nottingham Forest ended last year. Uh I can't pick a team. I can't really can't pick a team that's favourite. I would probably say Watford because they always seem to get their, their act together. Um, but no, it's going to be wide open and I'm sure Brentford will be in amongst it. Hooray! A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Today, 
Some big news now coming out of Arsenal this week. They've become the first Premier League club to announce major job losses after the coronavirus pandemic. They claim they needed to make 55 redundancies to continue investing in the first team. The cull, which a club source said will save many millions of pounds, will predominantly affect those working in hospitality, events, commercial and administrative positions. The club's scouting network, already trimmed back at a previous round of cuts, will also take a further hit. The news comes as the Gunners close in on a three-year £100,000 a week deal to bring William from Chelsea to North London, as well as continued negotiations over a new £300,000 a week contract for Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. As you can imagine, it's left a bad taste with many fans, including club legend Ian Wright, who took to Twitter to vent his frustration. Wright tweeted, remember who you are, what you are, and who you represent, alongside three disappointed face emojis. Alison, like Ian Wright, are you just as disappointed with Arsenal? Um, probably not. I'm not as emotionally invested. I, I think I think this is... We're forgetting that football is a business, and just because football is also about passion and love and hate and is often the centre of a lot of people's universe and um, is all they care about. It is actually a business at the end of it. And what Arsenal have done is, is work out that the, um, the hospitality and corporate side of their business has taken a massive hit. It would, would do, wouldn't it? There's no one there to buy very expensive gin and tonics and whatever else they give them. So they're thinking, well, we have to restructure, we have to make redundancies, which is exactly what would happen in any other business that was reliant on hospitality. But then you throw in the fact that um, Arsenal players took their own wage cut because they were told you're going to save the jobs of other people in the Arsenal family. So you think, oh, well, actually, what's going on here? Because that that's quite a rare thing for there are two separate businesses. There's the there's there's the players you buy and and the play and gain the revenue from TV, and then there's all the stuff around the edges where you, you we'll just call, call corporate hospitality for the sake of calling it something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were they were effectively subsidising that. And well, now they're being told that's not that wasn't enough. I can't believe a twelve and a half percent wage reduction doesn't give you quite a lot of revenue to to do the subsidy so i'm less cross with arsenal for making redundancies because that's what happens in bad times it's not nice but it's not like it's the the only business in the world to be struggling at the moment and to do that it's because they appeared to be on top of it they appeared to have players that were buying into the football's a family and not just a business and we want all the people connected to the club to have their jobs saved and that's sort of I don't I mean it just seems to have fizzled out this they were sort of that seemed to be a really lovely model if even if it seemed slightly naive model and not one that would happen in normal business there seemed to be this sense that well maybe football is different and maybe people do find it obscene that players are paid so much per week when you compare them to um other people in the same organisation who just get a sort of normal type of salary. But there they are prepared to say, no, we'll, we'll, we'll take a pay cut if we save jobs. So what's did they add up, up wrong or did they... Oh, I don't see why Arsenal are suffering, suffering more than other clubs that rely heavily on other matchday income to the point 
that those other clubs didn't get the players to take the pay cut, but they're not. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is the maybe this is the beginning, Natalie. Maybe now every club will think, oh well, they're the ones that have taken the PR hit. We'll we'll do the same thing. We'll just lay people off who normally work behind behind the bar on match day or whatever it is. So I just I, what annoys me isn't that people make redundancies because we're living in difficult business times. What annoys me is where have they where's their modeling gone wrong it looked mm. like it looked like they've been able to find a plan of action to keep everyone together and it just seems surprisingly fast to have decided they need to act staff well should we crunch some of the numbers you mentioned you were asking a few questions there Alison well Arsenal were as you pointed out the only Premier League club to agree a player wage cut during lockdown which will be 7.5% after qualifying for the Europa League so that's in theory saving the club £18 million the amount saved by the 55 job losses is expected to be a fraction of this as at an average salary of £35,000 a week for a player will save just under £2 million from their wage bill which was £232 million last season however Arsenal have an unusually large number of staff 724 in total of which only 73 are players um gregor i know we sort of talked about this already in particular more focusing on the efl and and the the fear that we could even lose some clubs uh, as a result of what's been happening uh, of late do you think this is just the start of difficult job cuts across football and and other industries in the wake of covid19 I mean, it's very likely, yes. And look, I know when you, you know, when you juxtapose the players earning millions and millions of pounds and them offering, as a lot of people are doing just now, and they're offering big contracts to players uh, at the same time as as laying off fifty-five people. You know, it's it's quite kind of striking and and difficult to swallow. But Alison's right. If these jobs don't exist anymore, on some of them, I mean, if 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 you were going to have a conference at the Emirates uh, or, you know, there was some event, uh, you either can't do it anymore or you have to do it in a very different way. So I don't, and we, really, that's kind of looking like it's going to be the case for the foreseeable. So there is something, you know, it's it's admirable and it's and it's right that clubs try to to do what they can to keep as many staff as the, as possible, but it's, it's going to be impossible because some of these jobs won't really exist anymore. There'll be nothing, you know, I don't want to say there'll be nothing for them to do, but it's going to be very different. Um, that's one part. But the other side, they've got to look at it. And some of this is, was, is Arsenal's scouting department, and people have been raising questions about whether Kia Jorbachin, the, the agent, is kind of taking quite a um, quite a lot of power in terms of Arsenal's recruitment. Um, Willian, I think, is his, his latest client. It looks like he might be mm-hmm. signing. So you know there is that, and a lot of you know Arsenal already trimmed their their uh, scouting uh, network down quite 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 heavily uh, earlier this year, I think it was, and it seems some of these people are scouts as well, so long-term scouts. Um, so that's interesting too. That could be a different dynamic to that. I don't, you know, it's going to be hard to to know until we see more of Arsenal how they're planning on restructuring that side of the business. But when we're talking about things that are actually a business, it's almost like, you know, they're, they're associated with football. Those things are things that drive revenue to pay the players on the pitch and it's not happening mm. anymore. So that's the dynamic of football and it's very sad for these people, but I, I think probably it is the start. 
I suppose, Alison, on paper, when you look at the money that is being discussed about players coming in, uh, players who are already at the club, whose contracts are being renegotiated, and also players who are possibly sat on the bench or not even in the squad, you can understand why there is some disappointment. But equally, at the end of the day, isn't this all about Arsenal protecting their biggest assets, which are the players and the football team itself? Yeah, you've got a point. They have to ring fence the football from the other elements of their business that are suffering because of the pandemic. Also, I think it may be that the current problems have made them think, wow, as you put it, Natalie, they do have an unusually large number of staff. Why is that? Why do Arsenal have more staff than most other clubs? So it could be that streamlining now rather than taking the romantic view and being scared to be talking about signing players on big wages at the same time as letting staff go, if they're prepared to take that PR hit, in the long term, more jobs will be saved. Because it's not sustainable to have a lot of people working on the sector of your business that isn't functioning properly. The football is functioning properly. Football they're, they're in, they're, you know, they're in, they're in Europe. They have a Premier League campaign to navigate. They want to be back in the Champions League. They want to be fighting for the title. They have a tra- trajectory they want to follow, and they're not going to be able to do that if they think they are morally obligated to uh, not spend if they're having to lay off staff. And um, yeah, the, as I made the point earlier, is is is, is, the, is the issue of cross subsidy which I think is a separate issue. And if they're not prepared to go the whole hog with that, um, then in a strict business sense, then, yeah, it, it, it is right that they, they, do, they do put a ring around both sectors of their business. And as you put it, not just protect the players, but protect the other staff. If you're, if you're tough now, you could, you could be in a healthier financial state two or three years down the line, I think. Now, we're going to finish today's podcast by talking about one of the game's great characters, and that is Neil Warnock. Warnock is 72 in December. When he took over at Crystal Palace in 2007, he said it would be his last job. He helped keep Middlesbrough in the championship at the end of last season during an eight-game temporary spell. There is a two-year contract now for him and still an insatiable desire to succeed in what is his 16th role as manager in an extraordinary career. In his latest press conference, he's been speaking about what keeps him motivated. He said this, Is management my addiction? I think so, yeah, he says, although I do enjoy a nice whiskey. When I look around, I just feel good around people that I know I can get something out of. It's not just the players. Jobs are so difficult. You have to have humour. You have to enjoy it. I love making players better. I make bad players average, average players good, and good players great. So Neil Warnock is addicted to football. Can we understand what he means, Gregor? I think so. I mean, given that... um... I too have spent my entire working life around it in some capacity. Uh, I think I would definitely say I'm addicted. But I've had a kind of, I don't know, a slightly different relationship. And when I played, I wasn't actually someone who would watch football religiously. Um, I don't, maybe I should have. I might have learned one or two things. But um, I, I think I think there, so there, there can be a limit, personally. But I am undoubtedly addicted and... and uh, and there's, there's plenty of evidence of that throughout my life. <laughs> Go on, tell us then. What's the evidence? Um, 
Well, I think I don't know. I remember what I remember moving down here, uh, moving down to London a couple of years ago, and it was kind of like the summer that was hotter than the sun, and spending every waking minute of for about two weeks in a darkened room with a fan on, just watching every game in the World Cup in Russia, <laughs> um, and I think actually asking. Uh, asking my girlfriend earlier about this, it took her about a split second to say that I'm a kind of a football geek pretty much every single day and that I watch a game on TV, another on the iPad and scroll through Twitter all at the same time. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes I kind of, I tell her stories about sort of nondescript, non-league teams with such enthusiasm, like completely unaware that she really doesn't care at all. Um, And at that point she was kind of really get into our flow so I left my left the room so um she's, <laughs> so certainly Susie would say I'm addicted to football. Alison, are you the same? Are you as addicted? Well it doesn't isn't addiction a negative word? I don't Oh it can be, I suppose how I don't you look know. at it. I don't I think I resent the phrase <laughs> <laughs> Alright, you're a football uh, fan, should we say that? Yeah, yeah, I am. And I don't I mean over the I've been doing this job 25 years and in that time I have met quite a few people who have admitted to me I've been sat next to them in the press box and they've said I'm not enjoying this anymore I'm gonna I'm gonna do something else or I think I'm getting a bit jaded and I've I've so when I first started and people were telling me that I was thinking oh my word I wonder how many years I've got before I feel you know this is just run-of-the-mill yeah. stuff I'm not excited but I I will admit that I <laughs> I get excited when the Times football desk put out the match list so you find out where you're going for the next two games I I <laughs> I, I, I open that email like it's opening a big big <laughs> surprise package in the post I think oh where am I going to go where am I going to go I, I'm, I'm, re- I'm sad enough to sometimes think I'll guess I'll guess where I'm going. And I, you know, I, so I still have that sort of childlike sort of enjoyment of the, the mere act of being sent to watch a football match. And it hasn't happened to me yet that I feel jaded. So if that, but if that, if that means I'm addicted, then so be it. But I wouldn't call that addiction. I would just call that being in love with something mm. and being devoted. Perhaps that's a better way of saying it, in love with football. But, but just before we move on and uh, talking about your, your own personal experiences, for you, Gregor, obviously having played the game, did you ever think about not being a part of the game still? Obviously you've moved into a different element of football in terms of being a journalist now, but did you ever think you could move away from it altogether? Yeah, I did. When I was... When I was, actually, I think you'll find that a lot of players have a, they go on a bit of a journey. I think when they're kind of in their early to mid-twenties, you ask them if they're going to be a, a coach or whatever, a lot, I will say, no chance. You know, I think I'll, I'll go and try something else or I'll, you know, I think, I think it just feels like that the, the day you end is quite distant and um, it's an achievement to reach in, in itself. So kind of envisaging st- staying in the game beyond that is quite hard to do. So, and then when you get towards your 30s, uh, you're not really sure what else you can do. And a lot of people then start doing their coaching badges and stuff. And I did that and I, and I enjoyed it to an extent, but I, I, I think I wanted to do something that was different but still associated to football. And, and uh, I'm glad to have been able to do that. But it does mm-hmm. give you a wee bit of a different relationship with, 
with the game, I think, because you're a fan first, then you become a player, and then you kind of, I don't know what am I now, I'm a fan, but I, it's still my job. <laughs> so, um, but yes, uh, always, I'm sure I'll always have some connection to football. In terms of Neil Warnock then, he's he keeps on going, and who knows when he'll finally decide that he's had enough. But when we reflect on his career so far, Alison, how, how do you think he'd be best remembered when he finally calls it a day, which probably won't be for decades, knowing the way that Neil Warnock's going? Um, well, he's entertaining. Uh, I haven't had too much to do with him, actually, really. Um, not been at many of his press conferences, but a few. I was there when uh, it was April 2018 and it was the end of the season and um, he, was, he was manager of Cardiff and Wolves were about to win the title, the championship title. And um, Cardiff, I think they missed, yeah, they missed two penalties. <laughs> they missed two penalties at the end. And when the final whistle went, um, Nuno Espirito Santo. He ran onto the. He's shaking hands. You remember this? He ran onto the pitch to yes. celebrate with his yes, goalkeeper. Yes, do remember this? It was it was uh, John Ruddy. And uh, well, I mean, I, I do, I do forgive Nuno for that because it was. I mean, it's a bit odd, isn't it, to to, to win a game that way? And it it it's quite nice to see Nuno get a bit emotional. But Warnock went absolutely. He just started swearing like crazy, and it was live TV. And he was so angry, but then he, 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 it was like, I sort of feel with him, he, he's quite calculated in it. So it, so quite a lot of minutes pass and then he comes into the press room and he's, he starts slagging Nuno off having no etiquette, no manners, no class. He's a disgrace. Even though Nuno had tried to subsequently shake his hand, I'm not going to do that now sort of thing. And it was left to me when Nuno came in. I'll always remember this. And so I was thinking, oh, surely the, the people who follow Wolves all the time will ask him about this. This was the big story of... <laughs> it was the big story of the night and people were just not talking about it. So I said, oh, Nuno, did you realise you've just been accused of having no etiquette, manners or class? <laughs> the look I got, he said, oh, I'm used to, I'm used to elite football. I know exactly what etiquette, manners and class are. <laughs> so, um, but that, so that's probably my, that sort of indignation from Warnock. It felt like it just suited him at the time to deflect from how his players were probably feeling terrible. And um, and so he, he just... I mean, good managers do that, don't they? They, they? they take the spotlight so the players don't have to worry about the mistakes they made on the pitch. So I suppose he's an old-school deflector like that and he likes the, the limelight and really doesn't mind if he's, how often he swears because he knows we'll, we'll just bleep it out for him and I think he likes being considered a character... Mm-hmm. And I dare say it defines him, and that's what he means by addicted. Is that that's that's who he is, and if he do, if he's not in charge of a football team, then who is he? So I I suppose, yeah, I'll just I'll just I just think, and he says he says he he likes he thinks he deals with the media well. I think he um, I think he plays the media quite well. He's, I, I've seen him be a bit grumpy when he feel he isn't being, you know, that he hasn't got a rapport going, and he feels like he's it's not. It's running away from him slightly, then he'll become quite sort of spiky. But um, yeah, I hope he, I mean, I've nothing against him. I hope he carries on until he's 91 indeed. I, I hope so. That'd be great. 
I think we'd like one of a, a long-term manager like that. It would be great fun. Well, do you know what? It, it kind of got us thinking. When he was asked the question of addicted to football, he said yes. And the internet, as as we love it, is full of articles on signs you may be a football nerd. So I'm going to ask both of you to answer these to see whether or not you are guilty of it. Um, attending more than one game a day. Greg, have you done that? I think I probably have uh, maybe like a non-league game, and then uh, and then uh, kind of a game in more in a higher a higher level afterwards. Or I've definitely played in games, and then gone to watch another game. So yes, I think technically okay. yes, but that not tick. like with great regularity. No, Alison, have you done that? Uh, no, no. I mean, I've attended kids' games and then gone on to a real game. I don't think that counts, does it? Um, so I've, I've managed to have a whole day of football. Well, so I don't. You, I have, think you, that's... you have. You, you mean I've either been refereeing or coaching or watching my kids play football, then I've dashed to a game, then I've come home and watched um, the late kickoff, maybe managed to squeeze in a bit, a bit of the earlier game too. So, well, I don't I think know. You, that, you can tell me whether that counts. I think that would be because some people might think, well, if I'm having to attend a game, say, for, for work purposes, I don't need to do anything before that. I need to relax and not worry about any other football. But you haven't. You've decided to fill your whole day with football. So, but I that's think that's the perfect day. That's the perfect absolutely. day. Absolutely. No, I'm with you, but I think that is a tick in the box, shall we say? Okay. Let's <laughs> box. Um, what about ever having to set your alarm and uh, be woken up in the middle of the night to watch a game? Has that happened? Gregor? I don't think so. I can remember. No. Not that I'm trying I can to think no. of the, the kickoff for Japan. What was yeah. that? Maybe that. I don't know. I can't even remember. Scotland that's were so in it, so I probably didn't bother. No. Alison, <laughs> would you have done that? Um, I stayed up really late. <laughs> but I don't, I, I, I don't think I've gone to sleep then woken up again. No. No. All right. Yeah, it's not like one of those pay-per-view boxing bouts that people do that for in America. But anyway, all right, so that's a cross for that. How about going into the club shop and pretty much buying everything there is? Alison? No, no, but I do buy stuff, but it's quite selective. I don't... Well, it's flags, I don't buy flags. I buy... <laughs> I like... If I, go with, if I go to cover a match abroad, I like to bring back something... Um, so usually a mug if it's a particularly attractive design from the club <laughs> shop. So, or a shirt for um, my son. Or yeah, I do. I do. I did. Ha- I have spent quite a lot of time in club <laughs> shops actually. <laughs> I don't. I, I look carefully for the the right thing. Okay. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I probably would do the same. You got to find the nicest thing in the shop that isn't tacky. Shall we yes. say? Um, Gregor, what about I you? Had, well, when I first started in the the journeyman column uh, I used to have to, there was a kind of panel down the side and one of the regular oh. things was the weirdest thing in the club shop of whatever club I visited oh I like and, it and I remember the, the what I found the kind of weirdest in the first week I think it was at Burton Albion or someone there was like Burton Albion car mats like <laughs> <laughs> but then when you go to you start going to you know I went for a few months you realise that most club shops have got pretty much all the same stuff so I it was getting yeah. harder and harder to find the weirdest thing but yeah the car mats, I think that was a big surprise. But me personally, not really, no, I'm afraid. No, I have to say, we we do own a few Brentford gnomes. There's a few of those knocking <laughs> about, I have to say. Yeah, they've definitely been bagged a few times. What about revising football trivia 
so you don't get caught out in pub quizzes. I think this is a silly one, really, because, Alison, you don't need to revise football trivia. You just know it. <laughs> I used to be. I'm, not, I'm really bad now. I think Google's been bad for my brain. Because oh, I'm not if you're at, yeah, if you're at a game, too. I don't need to watch a game knowing everyone's stats because I can just quickly look them up. So I don't... It's like a waste of brain space to fill it with stats. But before Google, when I was a kid, I the, some of my happiest moments were when at the end of term and the teachers would say okay we're going to have a quiz and people would pick teams and you know you wouldn't want a girl on your team if it was going to be a sports quiz we'd always win because I I was the girl who knew Uh, I knew the sporty stuff but I that's that's because you had to know it you couldn't you couldn't look it up you either knew it or you didn't know it so um no I don't I don't know I don't revise now no. no What about you, Gregor? Ever had to do that? Actually, probably for the first time ever uh, during lockdown when I was having the odd Zoom quiz. I, used to, I was doing a bit of revision then if I was doing ones with my mates. Uh, but you I took lost. it that seriously? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> Competitive. I still oh, lost it. Oh, dear. Uh, taking time off work to watch football. Has that ever happened to you, Alison? football's my work. <laughs> no, yeah, this one doesn't work for us. Either. I know. Well, I don't know. Maybe you've just thought, oh, I don't want to work today. I want to actually just enjoy it. Rather no, than I, 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 I would, if I had a day off or a week off and there was football on, I would watch the football. So there you go. There you go. And Gregor, I suppose that's the same for you. Yeah, yeah. I've not really, I don't, I've never really had a job I can take time off either, to be honest. No. That's true. <laughs> it's a bit tricky for you to say to the. Yeah, go on. I know Chris Wilder. Do you mind if I have next week? Yeah, off? it's a really important game. <laughs> I fancy going to the old firm. <laughs> um, and what about this one then? Have you prefer to watch, or do you prefer to watch football at home than in a pub to concentrate on it properly, Gregor? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, or worse, I go and I'm the most antisocial friend imaginable. So, oh dear, nobody wants that. No, yeah, no, definitely. I want to because you can't watch it properly. You can't hear the sort of analysis and the, the mm. halftime debrief and all that stuff. Definitely, much prefer watching it at home. But would you would you do that? What if it was just a, a social gathering in the pub? Do you still would you still rather be able to hear the analysis, even if it's a day off? You're not working, Gregor. Or <laughs> if it's a big you... game, absolutely. I will zone out and I will ignore my friends and try and listen to us and oh <laughs> understand what's going oh. on in the game. Wow, we are really learning about the true Gregor Robertson now. Alison, would you agree though with what? He, what, what, with what yeah, Gregor overall, said? overall, I'd rather watch football so I can really concentrate. But occasionally, it's nice to be in a pub and to get showered by beer when a goal is scored. <laughs> go that. That's true. Um, okay, confession time then. What is your biggest football geek moment I've, I, I don't really like to say football geek because it's a passion isn't it so Alison we've learned about your flags and the fact that you are a vexillologist there we go um, but um, Gregor have you got anything that you want to divulge now you want to own up and confess to I don't think I could really call it a geek I could call it a kind of fanboy moment I had once had where I think I probably said on this podcast, my absolute hero growing up was John Collins. Classy left-footed player who played for Celtic. Um, posters all over my bedroom wall. And it happened that when I was 18 at Forest, I played against Fulham in a reserve game. And John Collins was playing. 
And afterwards, I couldn't resist going up and telling him how much he was my hero. Like, <laughs> it was, uh, I think I went far too far into full fanboy mode. And uh, oh, it was getting a little bit awkward. He was very kind to me, actually, and he's kind of in the way he reacted. But that's probably my biggest uh, fanboy geekish moment, I think. And Alison, I'm, I'm assuming the collecting, collection of flags isn't what you would regard as your biggest footballing geek moment, is it? Or is it? No, I hadn't even thought of that. Um, (laughs) Well, when when Eddie Large died earlier this year, someone sent me a clip, and I'd completely forgotten, but I had appeared on uh, Baddiel and Skinner's fantasy football show. And I I was there representing a team, my team, a league called the Elvis Presley Memorial League, and my team was called Barca Babes. And uh, in the... (laughs) In the clip, they go, "Oh, I think we've got a we've got a manager in the audience, and uh, it's Alison Rudd." And I, I look so I look so ridiculous. Anyway, um, uh, I'm wearing a Barca jacket, and they actually said, "Why why is your team called Barca Babes?" And I said, um, "Well, I like Barca. I'm a babe, and I didn't expect to have to justify it in front of tens of viewers." And they cut, they, they cut that bit. Oh, <laughs> and then, um, but then they asked me about my team, and this is where it gets geeky. So on telly, there's me, and I start moaning about the fact that in my fantasy team, I've had to put Teddy, Teddy Sheringham in, and I shouldn't have done. And it's so, it's just so train spottery. It's just <laughs> so I thought probably given given how public it was. And there's still footage out there, um, and quite a lot of quite a lot of people tweeted when it came out. People were tweeting me, "Oh, you were so cute." Uh. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, so you went from fantasy football to collecting flags. Is that what happened, or was were you already no, no, collecting no, no, flags? No, no, that no I, I was already collecting. Really? That's Is there smart. one flag that's more precious than any of them all? Yeah, because uh, on Mother's Day, um, I got a card that said Happy Panamama's Day, and it was the Panama flag. Isn't that lovely? Oh, <laughs> oh that is sweet. <laughs> that is sweet. I love it. Who knew? Did you know this, Gregor? This obsession with flags that Alison had? Absolutely not, no. I'm intrigued. Have you got like a kind of big casket at home that you keep them all in, or what? Yes, I've got. Well, you know, I've got an old fashioned filing cabinet. Oh. So if you were a thief, then you might think, mm. <laughs> you'd open it up and it's full of flags. It's not full of important documents. Are they alphabeticalized? Oh, no, because that, the fun is, before every tournament, you have to throw them all over the floor and try and remember who's who and then make decisions and we have votes and things. It's good. I just love it. I absolutely love it. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to Alison and to Gregor. Remember to subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times for award-winning journalism on every platform. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. All you have to do is search The Times subscription for more information. We will be back with you on Monday. So in the meantime, enjoy your weekend. 